Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the podcast that offers you a sumptuous feast of our reporting and analysis from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu, civilian drones lift off. South America's lithium hotspots and why there's now gender parity in hurricanes. But first, Europe's saviour was our cover line this week. After creating his party, En Marche, or LRM, just over a year ago, France's President Emmanuel Macron has secured his place in the Elysee Palace. Expectations are high for the country's new leader, but he'll have to face down a challenge from the street to meet them, our cover leader argued. Mr Macron offers a fresh answer to the popular discontent that has swept through Western democracies. He promises a new politics that ditches divisions between left and right, He wants to restore dynamism and self-belief to France and, with Germany's help, to the European Union. This revolution is outward-looking and positive. In the battle between open and closed, Mr Macron is broadly for open in both trade and immigration. In French terms, he is an economic liberal. And, crucially, he is an optimist. But although a confident presence in Parliament has strengthened his hand there, there'll be plenty of opposing forces from the outside. Already the Ancien Régime is warning that the election leaves Mr Macron dangerously powerful and that the turnout of under 50% has deprived him of a mandate. Militant hard-left unions are threatening to fight his labour market reforms all the way. But he must face them down and ensure that the French know reform will benefit the entire nation. The hopes of France, Europe and centrists everywhere are resting on him. To read our briefing this week exploring the potential of Mr Macron's presidency, pick up this week's issue. On now to South America, where three countries on the continent hold most of the world's lithium. But as an article in our Americas section revealed, they take very different approaches to exploiting the white gold. Lithium is a coveted commodity. Lithium-ion batteries store energy that powers mobile phones, electric cars and electricity grids when attached to the wind turbines and photovoltaic cells. Joe Lowry, an expert on the lightest metal, expects demand to nearly triple by 2025. But supply is lagging and prices have risen sharply. That is attracting investors to the lithium triangle that overlays Argentina, Bolivia and Chile. The region holds 54% of the world's lithium resources, an initial indication of potential supply before assessing proven reserves. The three countries have demonstrated very different levels of carpe diem. Market-friendly Chile has a big head start. Argentina is hastening to make up lost ground, as the activity on the Oloroz salt flat suggests. Bolivia, whose resources are as large as Argentina's, has barely begun to exploit them. Those differences suggest much about how the South American trio treat enterprise and investment more generally. 
If you're keen to mine that story for more information, do head to our Americas section to read some more. Over to our coverage of China now, where we explored the state of that country's riches. It may be the world's second largest economy, and the official talk is of restoring it to its former glory. But as an article explained, it's been poorer than Europe for longer than the Communist Party likes to think. Xi Jinping, China's president, likes to talk of his Chinese dream. He says it involves the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. To him, this means that under the Communist Party, China will again be the world's richest, most powerful country, as it was before the hundred years of humiliation, the economic disasters, and territorial grabs by foreigners during the century after the First Opium War of 1839 to 42. That, however, might not be quite the case. What if it has lagged behind Europe, not for 175 years, but for 675? Would Mr. Xi's Chinese dream be so compelling? A new study suggests that China has lagged behind Europe for centuries. It compares levels of GDP per person in China, England, Holland, Italy, and Japan since around the year 1000. It finds the only period when China was richer than the others was during the 11th century. By that time, China had invented gunpowder, the compass, movable type, paper money. And the blast furnace, and indeed these findings could blow a hole in the historical consensus. These findings challenge a hitherto common belief that China and Europe had similar living standards for centuries until the West's industrial revolution began in the late 18th century. A point often referred to by historians as the Great Divergence. Let's listen into some of our other podcasts then. General Electric recently announced that its CEO Jeff Immelt will be replaced by John Flannery, a three-decade veteran at the conglomerate. In Money Talks, our New York bureau chief Patrick Fowles wondered if this could presage a fragmentation of the broadly based conglomerate. It'll be interesting to see whether Mr. Flannery, the new boss, comes. Under pressure immediately to break the company up, I think they would use two justifications. One is that the business has become much more global, and that if you're running a company with products in lots and lots of different countries, there is a synergy from being able to to have a suite of products and share the cost of that global overhead. And the second thing I think they would argue is simply that what Mr. Immelt has done is try to direct the portfolio of businesses they have back towards a set of businesses that have a bit more in common. Money Talks is Tuesday's weekly take on everything finance, business, and economics. So do take a listen. In this week's interview show, The Economist asks, our guest was Ken Rogoff, professor of economics at Harvard, and I asked him to decode Trumponomics for us. It's really hard to know what he's about there. He's a populist president. I think negotiating trade deals one by one in this complex world with lots of linkages across firms across countries is nuts. It's very difficult to do, as unfortunately the UK may soon find out. The Economist asks is available each Thursday through iTunes or your chosen podcast app. And in our science and technology wrap-up, Babbage, our deputy editor Tom Standage, talked us through the ascendancy of civilian drones. The sky may be the limit; that doesn't stop them being transformational from the ground up.
some of the crazier things are using small drones to pollinate flowers. People are worried about, you know, bee populations. You know, there are people working on passenger drones, so essentially flying cars, flying self-driving cars, if you like. And then there's the idea of sort of what are called energy kites. And these are like flying drones with a tether. So they take off, they're like a wing with a bunch of propellers, and they take off vertically, and then they fly up into the air, and then they loop round and round and round uh, on a tether, and they're like a flying wind turbine. Babbage brings you all you need to know about science and tech each Wednesday and a soft and steady landing back into our print issue for a final taste of this week's coverage. Turning to the back page, our obituary section, bade farewell to Roxy O'Neill Bolton, a campaigner for gender equality, not just in society, but also in storms. When the ancient Greeks made their whirlwinds female bird-winged harpy-eye, tearing up the rigging of ships, it may not have been for chauvinistic reasons. After all, shaggy-bearded Boreas was the north wind, and pretty boy Zephyrus, with his horn of flowers, the west wind. Things began to go awry, though, in the 19th century. When Clement Ragg, a British meteorologist working in the Pacific, began to name storms after Polynesian beauties. And intemperate chauvinism worsened once more during the war. American naval meteorologists had taken to tracking storms by naming them after their wives and girlfriends, much as bomber pilots like to paint curvy starlets on their aircraft. The feminization of destruction became so normal that in 1953 the National Weather Service made the practice official. One resident Floridian, Roxy Bolton, took umbrage at this. When she heard the weathermen say that Carol had destroyed Louisiana or Betsy had torn up Mobile, she was furious at the slur on women. These winds were not only annihilating but unpredictable, dithering about offshore and then flouncing off somewhere else. Oh, how like women! She began to pester the male-dominated National Hurricane Center in Miami. Why not name storms after senators instead, she suggested. As an old-line Democrat, she thought Hurricane Goldwater had a great ring to it. Insulting to the Senate, they cried. So Roxy drifted gently on to other matters. She prompted Richard Nixon to proclaim August 26th as Women's Rights Day, set up a refuge for battered women, and in 1974 opened in Miami the first proper rape treatment centre in the country. Then, in 1978, hallelujah, the National Weather Service gave in. Henceforth, hurricanes would have male and female names alternately. Which brings us a stormy close to this week's tasting menu. Do keep sending us your feedback by email radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 